What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Coming up on the Science Revolution today, Dr. Justin A. Frank is here on the psychology of mob mentality and violence. What propels a mob? Dr. Sam Metz, a member of Mad as Hell Doctors, drops by on the need for federal legislation to allow individual states to create true statewide universal health care plans, especially single-payer plans. Stay tuned. This is our old buddy, Justin Frank, Dr. Justin A. Frank, MD, the psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, the author of Trump on the Couch, his previous books, Obama on the Couch and Bush on the Couch. Justin Frank, MD, is his Twitter handle. And uh, Dr. Frank, welcome back. It's nice to have you again. I I wanted to ask about mob psychology. I wanted to get into uh, where Donald Trump's head might be at at this particular moment. But I wanted to start by asking you a question that one of your biggest fans, Veronique Raskin, who owns the Organic Wine Company out in California, she's an old friend of mine, and she sent me a note this morning and and she said, I'm still processing my feelings over friends supporting Trump even after January 6th. How do we manage these important relationships going forward? I'm sure she's not the only one asking this question. Well, first of all, the fact that so many people voted for Trump millions and millions. So my thought is, first of all, that there's some phenomenon called in large groups and mobs. You asked about mob psychology in large groups. There's a thing called a large group narcissism. And by narcissism, it has to do with what they value about themselves. And what Trump has tapped into is a group of people who've had terrible narcissistic shall we say, losses. I would even call them catastrophic losses. And that he has been able to tap into those feelings of loss and hurt and rage and galvanize them into something very positive. Belief in themselves, belief in him, belief in the fact that they can change America by breaking norms down, and belief that they are the ones who are good. And that the people in the Beltway and the people in power are not good, are actually evil. So there's this huge split. I'm not going directly to Veronique's question, but I'm going to get there because it's really a hard thing to just sort of jump into. And that is that the greatest contribution some people say that Freud ever made was actually almost a religious one, which is that we all have forces inside of us that are both good and bad, and that we have internal conflicts between those two forces, that they are mostly unconscious. And so that's actually, I mean, he could be quoting Isaiah, you know, who said that as the Lord, I create peace and I create war or I create evil. 
I forgot all the things that he created, but basically the Lord created both. So what happens is that when you're little and a baby, you have these two conflicts, and sometimes they're so anxiety-provoking and painful that you want to get rid of them, one of them. So you end up being on the side of the good and you project the bad into people around you, usually into frightening groups, organizations. Maybe even you can split your parents, have a good mommy and a bad daddy, or even a good mommy and a bad mom. And so you project and get rid of. And then these people have been very injured. And I think Trump was injured in his own family life. I don't have any empathy or sympathy for him because he is very cruel and destructive. But what happens when you have a catastrophic loss is you begin to have a perverse attachment to denying that loss, denying mourning, not feeling sad about what you've lost, but in fact feeling good that you're not like that, feeling good. So the problem is that a lot of people really do believe in what Trump stands for, which is breaking down something that's bad so they can feel good. And I think that that's a serious problem because it's a way of avoiding inner conflict. And the hard thing is for us is that probably very few of the people who voted for Biden spend time watching Fox News. But Fox News does tap into that side of things, and they do a different kind of splitting of the world into good and bad. And so they externalize the bad and turn it into socialism, into democratic dictatorship, into massive taxation, into all kinds of bad things. And that's what these people are fighting against. So how do we reconcile with our friends? Just just agree not to discuss politics with them? No, I think we have to discuss politics, but we have to agree in the beginning that we don't agree. And we have to be open mm-hmm. to the fact that our friendship transcends our beliefs. And that yeah. we have yeah. to have a basis of conversation based either on familial ties, but based on mutual respect and affection, and that there are fr- there's friendship. And that that's very important, and that it's very troubling to see one's friend as a bad person, and it must be troubling for them to see me as a bad person. So we have to right. find some way of starting to talk about it. And that would be, it's like aligning yourself with the cystic injury, that I've been hurt that my friend doesn't like me, and my friend's been hurt that I don't like them. And we have to share our hurt feelings and build from there. It makes perfect sense. I've seen a number of websites that have been recently speculating that Donald Trump is experiencing some sort of nervous breakdown or mental breakdown. You know, he's been through pretty bad stuff before. He's been through six bankruptcies. He's been through two divorces. Do you think that he's stressed in a way that might be dangerous to the world or himself? No. I think he's dangerous to the world, period, because he's always been dangerous. But I don't think that it's because he's stressed right now. I mean, he might be have an increased uh, amount of cruelty and destructiveness, but he's always been destructive. And one of the things that happens when you split good and bad is that you end up becoming very much on the side 
of one or the other, and you end up feeling triumphant over the good, and you turn the good in a perverse way into something bad. So what Trump has done from the beginning of his presidency is he's turned tradition and American goodness, like belief in the, in the press, trust in certain things, he's turned those things into bad, into evil. And he has really done that very successfully. So I think um, he reminds me of uh, the way Milton wrote about Satan, not that Trump is the devil, but there is something about that, whereas Satan said, uh, by my mind, I can create a heaven out of hell and a hell out of heaven. So when Trump is leaving heaven, namely the White House, namely a great place, he is, and he's leaving, he's unable to mourn loss, unable to recognize the fact that he had loss, which is that he lost the election. He cannot acknowledge that because it would be too painful for him. So he has to triumph over it by denying the goodness of the person to whom he lost. So he's going to leave with a 21-gun salute. He's going to leave celebrating his trip out of heaven. He's going to celebrate that he's leaving a bad place instead of the place he wanted to be in. Remarkable. Makes perfect sense. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So, Dr. Frank, I'm curious over the short term, how do you wean people off Trump's psychological manipulation. How do you help people wake up from the Trump cult? Well, the hardest thing to do is to ally yourself with why it's so important for them to have that cult. You cannot wean somebody until you know about what the good is. Because if you start trying to just say their cult is bad, you're not going to be able to wean them. Because to them, it's not bad. It's good. So we have to find some way of both being good. It's almost psychologically uh, to find a way to sit side by side your cult friends as opposed to opposite them. So you can have a conversation like they would do in some kind of place where there'd be a bubble from a conversation that would fly up into the air and both of you would be looking at the same conversation together, sitting side by side talking about what you share and what worries you and what frightens you and why. I don't see any other way of doing this. And I do think, and I do know that the people who've studied weaning people out of cults, and there have been lots of books and papers written about it in the, for the general public and in psychoanalytic circles and in many places, how hard it is and how long it takes. There was a guy, and I can't remember his name, I wish I could right now, I, I can let you know later, uh, who wrote a book about having been in a cult, and he then analyzed it psychologically, and it was published in around 2013. I can find out who, his na- who he was, but basically, mm-hmm. it took a long time. I'm guessing that the worst way to do it is to start out by saying, you know, Donald Trump is evil or crazy or stupid or something like right. that. Absolutely. That's the worst thing. If Donald Trump were on my hospital as a patient and I was examining, uh, interviewing him in front of other people, that would be very different. Then I would say, I'm very curious, Mr. Trump, what is it like to be a con artist? How does it feel? 
But even that, I would be asking him something. <laughs> but I think that starting out by talking about how evil and bad Trump is, and I've done that with my friends, and it's impossible. I can't have a relationship with them because I'm saying that to me, what's bad is to them what's good. What it's almost like expressing different really value split. systems. Yeah, it's about a split. Uh, Dr. Frank, I think probably most of us have had this experience in our lives. I've had it with hornets when I was a kid growing up in Michigan and with uh, fire ants when we lived down in Atlanta, Georgia, which is that uh, these uh, insects that just kind of seemingly are just buzzing around or walking around, no big deal, are provoked in some way and suddenly they become something completely different. They become a, I think it's referred to as a swarm with insects. But we see the same thing with human beings forming mobs and doing things as mobs that I doubt any individual would do. You know, the old lynch mobs, for example. How does that happen? What's the switch that flips this on for us? And and where is this buried deep within us, this ability to become murderous? I, I think war is probably another demonstration of this. Well, I did say in the beginning of our discussion today that we are what makes us human is that we have good and bad parts of ourselves. And we need to, because they cause painful conflict sometimes, we want to get rid of the bad and we project it. We unconsciously bury it and put it outward into others, into people maybe of a different race, like you were saying in your list of qualities of the totalitarian personality. And you see yourself as only good and the others as only bad. So you become on the TV, on the alert for anything bad. You become on the alert for something bad like socialism, something that's evil like a godless communism. It's everything that is bad exists outside of you, whether it's immigrants trying to get into this country and take away your jobs, whether it's equal opportunity in college, people of a different race are trying to take away the white person's access to college. It's about loss and a fear of loss. And the loss has been catastrophic, and it usually starts in childhood. What happens is that the heart of destructiveness is from catastrophic loss. What Trump has tapped into is the catastrophic loss that his base has felt, which is being unheard, unlistened to, ignored, bypassed, and he is able to give them a voice and he can turn their feeling of catastrophic loss into both good and into something destructive. So they become an angry mob. They become angry and hate the government. And what he's done by doing that conversion is he's taken a normal development, which is having loving, some form of loving parents or loving feelings and being held and cared about into something bad, into something anal, really, into something that's not strong and positive. So what's happening is is people feel alienated from what was once supposed to be good, like government's supposed to be good. Roosevelt said government was good. We were here to build roads. We were here to help feed the poor. We were here to have Social Security. We were here to help. 
Well, government over time became the problem. It sort of started with Reagan. I mean, Trump didn't make it the problem. Trump gave permission for mob mentality to attack and be destructive. But Reagan said government is the problem. And alienation from the good is what's happening. And these people feel justified in their attacks. That's why they can send pictures of themselves. And they're proud of what they did when they went in there. This is a mob mentality. What a mob does, people wouldn't do individually. That's true. And a lot of people have written about the difference. The best book, if you want to read a book and talk about it, is by Eric Fromm. And it's called Escape from Freedom. And it's all about the power of the group and how people feel more powerful when they're with other people who are like-minded. So when you're with other people who've had terrible narcissistic injury, you can form an identity, an identification. We are the good guys. The immigrants are the bad guys. The government are the bad guys. Whoever is not us, the socialists. And we are the good guys. And they have a mob mentality. And what happens is their conscience is not really the same as the conscience of an individual. It gets modified by the large group. So they can really feel justified in doing what they do in a way that people as individuals cannot. Remarkable. Dr. Justin Frank, author of Trump on the Couch, is Twitter handle Justin Frank MD. Always great talking with you, Dr. Frank. Thank you. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On the line with us is Dr. Sam Metz. Sam is deeply involved with the whole movement to bring about a national health care system. He's a retired anesthesiologist. He's a member of Physicians for National Health Plan, PNHP, and the Mattis Hell Doctors. SamuelMetz.com, M-E-T-Z.com is uh, his website. PNHP.org is the PNHP website, and uh, the Twitter handle is at PNHP. Dr. Metz, you've been talking about, writing about, the possibility that there could be an enabling legislation passed at the, at the federal level that allows states to put into place their own single-payer health care plans, including and using for those or toward those the money that's available through Medicare and Medicaid, if I understand this correctly. I believe that was the barrier that Vermont ran into when they tried to do this. Educate me, please. Tom, you are correct. Most federal laws now regarding health care prevent any single state from collecting all of the federal money and all of their own money that they currently spend on health care 
and put it into a single pot. About 85% of each state's health care spending is governed by a federal law, which really hampers the ability of states to use their health care dollars wisely. Some of these federal programs, like Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act, do have waivers, though they're hard to get. Medicare has only issued one waiver in its 60 years. And the biggest law that prevents states from collecting all the money spent on health care is a formerly obscure law called ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, which says that states cannot legislate anything that employers do. They're without federal enabling legislation, any state plan is so complex, it risks losing the simplicity and the administrative savings of a universal care plan. This is not just a matter of HHS or whatever agency might be regulating that cash, issuing a waiver to the states. This is something that needs to be fixed with federal legislation. Do I have that right? And that's what Ro Khanna is trying to do right now? That is exactly correct. Ro Khanna's House Resolution 5010 would allow states to apply for one single waiver, which, if approved, would allow the state to collect all of the federal money that they currently collect and mobilize all of the money that's being spent privately and direct it into a single plan. That single Hmm. plan, which has a one insurance form, one formulary, one drug purchase plan, one payment plan for the whole state, could cut back administrative costs at least by half for nationally. That would be $600 billion, which is more than enough to address the unmet medical needs in the United States spending no more than what we spend now. That's the remarkable ability of Rokana's plan. It doesn't require the U.S. Congress to create a single-payer plan, which would be ideal, but it also takes the U.S. Congress out of the way so that states can try this on their own. That's the remarkable, groundbreaking goal of this legislation. Now, Tommy Douglas, as a young man, had he had a, an injury to his leg that festered for a year and a half because his parents couldn't afford to take him to a doctor. Finally, a kindly surgeon took pity on him and actually did a what would have been a very expensive surgery because it, it had now infected the bone in his leg. And it ended his need for having the leg removed and amputation. So he was very into health care, you know, and he became premier of Saskatchewan, the governor of that state, essentially, how we would call it in the United States, and, and, uh, and, and worked. And then, and, then, and then he went into the federal legislature and for years in the federal legislature worked for a single payer health care plan and was unable to do it, came back to Saskatchewan, became the premier again and, and passed this. And other provinces, other Canadian provinces saw how well it was working in Saskatchewan and said, hey, we can do this. Um, And, you know, within a few years, it had spread all the way across the country, at which point the conservative prime minister of Canada, forgetting his name, said, oh, this is a good idea and put this into place nationwide. 
Are you expecting that if, for example, California and Vermont, two states that have already expressed an interest in doing this sort of thing, if they could just get this waiver, if they were to do this tomorrow morning, that within five years we might have a, a national health care plan happening that same way, that it would it would move across the country like marijuana legalization or raising the minimum wage has? Yes. And in fact, Tommy Douglas created North America's first single-payer plan in his province, as you noted. And 40 years later, poll of Canadians voted him the most popular, most important Canadian ever. And his competition was Wayne Gretzky and Gordon Lightfoot. So the Canadians <laughs> clearly appreciate what he did for health care. And we could do the same thing. Let's suppose my home state applies for this federal enabling legislation, accepts it. We try a single-payer plan in Oregon. And as you said, one of our neighboring states says they can do it, which means we can do it better. And the next state comes up with a better plan. And the next state comes up with a plan that's better than that. And every state that recreates its own universal single-payer plan does it better and we march across the country. At some point, yeah. maybe we'll become like Canada. Canada does not have a national single-payer plan. They've got 14 different provincial and territorial plans, but they all work in synchrony. They're all modestly different. Each one was better than the one before. Imagine in the United States with 50 different improvements on the first state. Yeah. If we have five states, maybe the federal government, maybe Congress will say single-payer works. It's not an experiment anymore. It works, and our citizens, our constituents are clamoring for it. Let's just cut to the chase and create a national plan. It seems so straightforward. So, yeah, I'm totally with you. Dr. Metz, thanks so much for dropping by and telling us about H.R. 5010 that Rep. Brokana is doing. People can call their members of Congress. I really appreciate your dropping by. Thank you so much, Tom. Dr. Sam Metz with uh, Physicians for National Health Plan, pnhp.org is the website. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.